Well, amen. Good morning, saints. Today is December 2nd, 2018. A few weeks ago, we had a message called Shimming the Foundation. In that message, we learned to resurrect God's promises to Israel rather than reinterpret them. And we learned how to apply those lessons to our lives, both in a theological way and a very practical way. Did y'all enjoy that message? Yes. Are y'all awake today? Yes. Look, we... We're struggling to get something good together for you. We're going to need your help today. You going to help us out, Curtis? I got the right blood type for this. Holy Ghost nobility. Our next message was fine-tuning the faith of Abraham. We learned that while righteousness and wickedness may seem kingdoms apart, those choices are often standing right next to each other. Isn't that right? You were invited to learn a lesson from our older brother, our natural bloodline brothers, the Jewish people. We re-examined our assumptions that we make when we think that God spoke to us. And we learned to authentically stand on the will of the God of Israel. Amen. This morning, we will be discussing Israeli fire. Come on, somebody say that out loud. Israeli fire. Oh, give us better than that. Make it sound like fire. Israeli fire. Woo! That's better than coffee right there. Our message will begin this morning in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham. And while you're turning there, we would like to mention that Hanukkah begins for Jews all over the world this evening as the sun goes down. Amen. As you're looking in Genesis 15, as we begin in verse 8. Adonai has already emphatically promised Abraham a few things. The first being that a son coming from his own body will in fact be his heir. That his offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And that Abram will take possession of the specified promised land. Come on, are you there in Genesis 15 with us? Hey, let's let's be here together today, amen? You're going to want to hear everything that we have. Verse 8, it starts off by saying this, But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. You know, what is beautiful about this is that Abram's assurance, somebody say assurance. Assurance. That's what he was looking for, assurance. Abraham's assurance would be based on a covenant that God himself would initiate and God himself would complete. This occurs independently from Abraham. And we serve a God who has purpose in everything he does. And the purpose of this covenant was so that Abram could know that he would gain possession of what Adonai had promised. While the covenant was made by God, Abram would have to fight for it. Come on, doesn't that make sense? How many things have you had promised in your life? And we want to sit back and expect them to just develop free from us. God has promised it to Abram. He made the covenant himself and Abram still had to fight for it. Immediately after, in this holy moment, in this time where the very presence of God is meeting with man, there's a birds of prey that come and descend on the very sacrifice that Abram is making and in part of. Come on, this, this should teach us something right here from Genesis 15. 
I know that when we're talking about cutting animals in half, this is not something that we, we do today. I mean, and because it's not, it'd be easy to be familiar with this passage and at the same time be completely unfamiliar with it. Jeremiah 34, 18 is a good explanation for why these animals are cut in half. This covenant is initiated by God. It's completed by God. God is the one who passed through the pieces of the covenant. But Jeremiah 34 explains in the written word what happens to the party who passes through the pieces and doesn't keep the covenant. It literally teaches that the party who walks between the pieces will be cut into himself just like the pieces if he violates the covenant. What is important about that is when you consider that God is passing through, it is a way and a very ancient ritual of saying, if I violate what I am telling you, Abraham, I would have to be torn in two, which of course is not possible to be done. This covenant is something to be taken seriously. Let's look at verse 12 in Genesis 15 and see the exact occurrence with Abraham. As the sun was setting... Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. This is kind of like prison ministry whenever you're here on a Sunday morning. (laughs) Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Yeah, are you catching what we're reading here? Let's have a bit of an illusion of the first time as we're reading this. Abram was asleep when the covenant was enacted. Adonai said to Abram, Know for certain. From the beginning, the plan involved freedom, enslavement, judgment of sin, burial, and future fulfillment. Come on, let's continue reading in this passage in verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, come on, somebody say that day. That That day. day. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. It's hard to impress with words on people the significance of what's just happened. When we say a smoking fire pot, you know, you might think of a patio out at my house and Matthew sitting with a cigar. That is the wrong image. When you think of the Shekinah glory of God, that is the right image. The smoking fire pot with a blazing torch is the presence and the glory of God. The God of Israel is represented by fire. When you trace that through the word, it becomes so clear. He's the fire in the burning bush of Exodus 2 with Moses. He's the fire in the smoke on the mountain in Exodus 20 with the whole nation. He's the fire that is consuming offerings on the altar with the priest in Leviticus 9. He's the pillar of fire leading Israel through the desert in the book of Numbers. In Deuteronomy 4, God spoke to them from fire and it blatantly says God is a consuming fire. So when the fire passes between the pieces, make no mistake, 
Abraham is asleep and God himself initiated and completed a covenant with Abraham that he would fight for, but he could not begin and he could not complete. Only the fire of God could bring it about. Come on, isn't that a treasure for us to be able to have access to? All these things are leading to a central point, and that is the God of over all creation has revealed himself as an Israeli fire. Let me say that again. The God over all creation has revealed himself as an Israeli fire. His promises are expounded upon in the Naveen and become even more beautiful. The God of Israel will make their salvation as obvious as his nature, like an Israeli fire. Hey man, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah chapter 62. You actually heard this scripture come forth during worship today. We're going to begin in verse 1. It says this, for Zion's sake, I will not keep quiet. For whose sake? Zion. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. Look, now no matter how hopeless things may look, This promise of her salvation that is going to be like a blazing torch, that promise still stands today. Any way that you read this passage in the Peshat, the nations have to see her righteousness. Whose righteousness? Israel's. All the kings have to see Israel's glory. She has to have a new name. Any way that you want to look at that, this is a worldwide recognition of salvation coming to Israel. And there is no way to squeeze that into some other time period. Amen. You know, this salvation that is like a blazing torch, visible to the whole world, will be absolutely glorious. Amen. It reminds me of the Israeli fire that fell on Solomon's temple. Everybody turn to Second Chronicles chapter 7. We're reading verse 1. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Come on now, that's great news. Throughout Israel's history, the God who spoke light into darkness was represented as a fire within Israel. Not just a fire within Israel, a fire in the land of Israel. In addition to that, a fire for Israel. You could say that we're talking about an Israeli fire today. See, as God's chosen people, Israel's gone through many ups and downs. Can you say amen to that? Amen. But God has always been an Israeli fire purifying, refining, and sustaining the nation of Israel. Today is the beginning of Hanukkah. Tonight at sundown. Nothing could illustrate the point more than this particular festival. You know, in the 300s, Alexander had conquered the biblical world by the age of 30. What have you done in your life? (laughs) Just a tall order, I guess. But died almost as suddenly as he had taken the world by storm. Mm. The Diadachi, or the successors, then fought and divided up the world. They were the generals, Cassander, Ptolemy, Antigonus, and Seleucius. You know... 
that Seleucid Empire is an interesting one. Ptolemy took over the region that is Israel. He was pushed out by the Seleucid Empire. And in the year 175 BC, Antiochus IV, that history calls Antiochus Epiphanes, ascended to the Seleucid throne. His name means, I am God manifest. By the year 168 BCE, Antiochus Epiphanes looted Zerubbabel's temple and began massacring Jews. He also outlawed the practice of Judaism at that time. Mm. About a year later, in 167 BC, Antiochus ordered an altar to Zeus erected in God's holy temple. And he sacrificed a pig on the altar of God. Mattathias, the high priest, and his five sons, John, Simon, Eleazar, Jonathan, and Judah, led a rebellion against Antiochus. How dark do you think those days looked? If Jesus Christ himself had not said to look for the abomination that causes desolation that Daniel spoke about in the future, we would be certain that this had happened. The thing is, the dark days didn't stay dark forever. In the year 166, the high priest Matthias, or some call him Matanyahu, he dies, but he had a firstborn son. Come on, somebody, say your firstborn son is the sign of strength in your house. Amen. His name was Yehuda Ha Maccabee, Judah the Hammer. Yes. He was raised up to lead his people to victory against this Greek Syrian horde that had invaded the promised land. And he's a hero just like Gideon or any other biblical figure because he came in and he liberated God's people in God's land. Somebody say Yehuda. Yehuda. The hammer. The hammer. Amen. This momentous event in history is known as the Maccabean revolt. And it succeeds in creating the Hasmonean Jewish kingdom that existed in freedom for over 100 years until the Roman general Pompey entered Israel, occupying it in 63 BCE. This time period of the Maccabees or the Hasmonean dynasties is when Hanukkah takes place. Hanukkah means dedication. Say dedication. Dedication. And it has a triumphant theme like Psalm 30. Turn with me there to Psalm chapter 30. Amen. In this Psalm, David, he's writing for the dedication of Solomon's temple. In Psalm chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. Say there when you're there. 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 It says, I will exalt you, O Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths. And did not let my enemies gloat over me. Amen. Oh Lord my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. Oh Lord, you brought me up from the grave. You spared me from going down into the pit. Sing to the Lord, you saints of His. Praise His holy name. For His anger lasts only a moment. But His favor, yeah, that lasts a lifetime. Amen. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Amen. Oh, come on. Tears today, joy tomorrow, huh, saints? Yes. Do you notice that at the dedication to Solomon's temple, David has written a psalm and the psalm's theme is life from the dead? The psalm's theme is don't gloat over me, my enemy. The hope of Israel has always been in the resurrection. It has always been in what looks impossible for man is possible with God. So don't you count Israel out in your theology. Don't you count things done that are not done. Because 
God Himself will complete for them His promises, and He will complete for you your promises. They do not need to be reinterpreted. They need to be resurrected. Amen. See, the temple during the Maccabean period, it had been defiled by an Antichrist. He had slaughtered a pig on the altar of God, and he had massacred the people of God. You know, women make a a major difference throughout history. During this time period, one woman named Hannah, which is Hebrew for grace, was arrested, tortured, and watched the public execution of her seven sons, one by one, as they refused to bow to Antiochus or his idols. May we have the same privilege one day. Amen. It is incredible to consider that the Greeks had assimilated most of the world's religion with no problem. They loved multiculturalism almost as much as our liberals do today. But there was one culture that they found intolerable. The one that had been designed by God. It's interesting that hatred was not limited to the Syrian Greeks. I want to show you a slide here to honor Hanukkah today. Do you see what's in the background? See, this hatred has come from the Persian Empire. This hatred has come from the Greek Empire. This hatred came from the Syrian Empire. Every empire in the world of size or note at some point has persecuted one culture on the planet. Ask yourselves why. And if God is done with Israel today, why is the devil not done with Israel today? All you have to do is listen To one United Nations meeting and you'll hear a godless band of dictators attacking God's chosen people for no other reason than they are chosen. We cannot stand by and watch while that flag rises in the background. It's time for the people of God to stand up for the original people of God. Amen. You know, for the most part, the Greek Syrian hatred of the Jewish culture was one-sided. Yes, Jews rose to fight against this occupier. But in general, Jews did not hate Greek culture. The Talmud actually extols the virtues and the beauty of the Greek culture, saying that among all the languages in the world, the only one that you could translate the Torah into elegantly was Greek. Other than Hebrew, of course. You know, Maimonides... A very famous Jewish sage. He, reading Aristotle, said he's a kind of half-prophet. In other words, he saw him as landing on many truths. Unfortunately, a half-truth is often an entire lie. The major issue pertaining to Hanukkah is that the menorah was to be kept burning continually. And all of the sacred oil for the menorah, representing the God of Israel's fire, was defiled except one day's supply. Malachi 3.3 had promised something. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. You know, miraculously, the one day supply lasted for eight days and Israel's fire never went out. Somebody say it never went out. Never went out. God's not done with Israel. Not then, not now, not ever. 
You'll know when he's done because the earth will have given birth to its dead. And nobody, not in the heavens or on the earth, will have been able to miss the event. This is why Hanukkah is associated with a special menorah with eight branches. It is a reminder that the world's hatred for God's culture did not stop Adonai from sustaining his people. It is a reminder that though there is only a remnant, God is able to purify them again. Amen. It is a reminder that Israel stands for God's light in this world. Most of the festivals that take place in Israel, though they're public festivals, occur inside of a home. Like Passover was a public worldwide event, but when you celebrate Passover, you do it at a Seder table. You, you do it inside of your house. When you are celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a, a father leads his family through the house. It's inside the house. Hanukkah is unique because it is a public mitzvah. And what I mean by that is you put this special menorah that is a Hanukkah symbol in the window for the world to see. The idea is that you want everybody outside the house to see what is sustaining you on the inside of the house. It is a public testimony to the Israeli fire of God. We need this public testimony in front of us on a yearly and practically on a daily basis. That Hanukkah is a reminder of the purpose of Israeli fire. And that is to be a light into a dark world. (laughs) There was a great debate in the sages of Jesus' day. Do we start with the eight branches of the special menorah lit or do we light them one at a time? Hillel's opinion prevailed in this matter. The light of God, the very Israeli fire that we're speaking to you about today, should grow continually every day until Messiah completed Israel's redemption. Oh, come on now. I, there, there was one amen. Are you catching that? You light a new light every day while the collective number of lights keeps growing until Messiah shows up. Amen. By the way, the dissenting opinion, Shama, he was not wrong. It's just a matter of perspective. They were both right. He said, no, light them all at once because God's power has been revealed. And what you will see is the darkness of the world growing as you extinguish one each day. One of them saw the world coming to Messiah. The other saw the world moving away from Messiah. And both were right. But the enduring testimony of the Jewish people is a growing light. Not a fading one. It will just take a resurrection of the dead to do it. By the way... When you walk into a Jewish home, in the upper one-third of the door on the right-hand side, you should see a mezuzah. In this church, we've come to learn that a mezuzah has to do with your purpose in life. But it was given to Israel before we could ever learn from it as a purpose for the nation. Do you know in the first century where they put their special Hanukkah menorahs? They put them on the left side of the door frame. Now consider the beauty of this. On one side we have the very purpose, the written word of God. On the other side we have the sustaining spirit of God. Do you know what this would mirror to everyone in the first century, what they would see it as? If you have the high privilege, which no Israelite save a Levite did, and not even all Levites, only priests, if you had the privilege to go into the holy place... 
When you were standing in the holy place, on your right would be a table of His presence, representing the Word of God. On His left would be the burning Spirit of God. On your right and left, you would have these things. And now in a Jewish home, when you walk to the door, it would be saying, that's the temple, but this is also the holy place. Come on, the amen. fire of God is here. The Word of God Woo! is here. God's throne is not just in that building. It's in my home as well. Amen. Oh my goodness, the fire of Israel is alive and well. Amen. You know, the temple of the living God was only just a collection of stones if it didn't have Israeli fire within it. Hanukkah is a reminder that the temple is important, but the presence of God, the fire of God, the Israeli fire is what is really important. If something is defiled, downcast, discarded, the fire of God can refine it. It can repurpose it and it can restore it. Come on, God is not done with Israel. Why are we focusing so much on our, on our teachings lately about this? Pastors, we get it. We get the idea. No, 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 we really don't. Don't think that we understand more of this than we do. We are trying to get this down, driven down deep into the soul of everyone that's in this room. Of every single person. Pastors, who are you aiming at? We're aiming at all of you. You know that this is a message, this type of message has been taught since this church first began? It's written in our original statement of faith. We are trying to expound upon this because God is putting His very finger on exactly what this topic is for us. That God is not done with Israel. The God of the Israeli fire will need, indeed need to purify His people. He will make their salvation shine like a blazing torch. There are so many misconceptions that we need to get out of the way. And we don't have time to address them all today. Say, there is an emphasis on Israel in this church and even more so lately. No, you're just listening more closely lately. The truth is, is this has been in our heart from the beginning. It only grows and grows. There's been a 2,000 year de-emphasis of Israel. We need to swing the pendulum in the other direction. One of the great misunderstandings that we need to get out of the way right now, and, and I don't want to slow down in preaching to teach and do it, and at the same time, it's worth getting. Let's everybody in the church turn to Matthew 3. When you get to Matthew 3, discover the seventh verse and then call out, God's not done with Israel. (laughs) I haven't heard every verse. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not think you can save yourselves. We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This verse has been so misunderstood that it's been thought that the kingdom was taken from Israel and given to Gentiles. I want you to hear something. The axe at the root means a change in Israeli leadership, not a transference to the Gentiles. Even if God had picked the stones, they were stones inside of Israel. They were Israeli stones. God's presence is in Israeli fire. 
The temple of the first century had become as corrupt as when Antiochus defiled it between the Testaments. So God's glory, his Shekinah fire, moved from a brick and mortar Israeli temple to flesh and blood Israeli men. It was not taken from the nation of Israel. It was taken from the leaders of the nation of Israel and new leaders were appointed. Adonai had rejected the leaders who rejected him, but he chose Israeli men who would produce the fruit of the kingdom. You can name them all day long because they are the men that gave you your Bible. I'm talking about Paul. I'm talking about Matthew. I'm talking about Barnabas. I'm talking about Peter. I'm talking about Apollos. These are men that the Israeli fire of God caught them on fire. All men were not the same. These men were the first to catch that fire. Others didn't come until they came into contact with these men. God did not remove His hand from the nation. God did not take the kingdom of God away from the nation. He took it away from very specific leaders and put it in the hands of other leaders. That's good. Come on, is that a, a revelatory word in understanding? For years, I read that scripture and I had the same understanding that Pastor Eric first mentioned, that it was a replacement. Instead, it's a fulfillment to the nation of Israel. This couldn't be any more evident in Acts chapter 2. Turn there. And when you get there, say, God's not done with Israel. Israel. Amen. (laughs) Amen. I want to hear it around the room. God's not done with Israel. I think we almost had Pentecost right here again. There were multiple languages all at once. Oh, the engine's starting to turn over, but it hasn't caught Israeli fire yet. You, you still working on some little Gentile flickers. You, you need some <laughs> Israeli fire in this room. Sheesh. When the day of Pentecost came, they. Everybody say they for me. They. Let's, let's define who were the they in this passage. Jews. 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 Only Jews. Israeli men. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They. Everybody say they again. They. Israeli men again. Saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them, Israeli men. This is a feast of Israel. This event is occurring in Israel. Every person receiving the fire of God is an Israeli because it's Israeli fire. Y'all getting the point here? Amen. I want to show you a tractate from the Babylonian Talmud. Let's go ahead and put up this, this slide. This is Yoma 39b. And it mentions the glory of God, the fire of Israel departing from the temple 40 years before its destruction. Can you see it here? It says, the sages taught during the tenure of Shimon Hadzadik. The lot for God always arose in the high priest's right hand after his death. It occurred only occasionally. But during the 40 years prior to the destruction of the second temple, the lot for God did not arise in the, hand, in the, in the high priest's right hand at all. So too the strip of crimson wool that was tied to the head of the goat that was sent to Azazel did not turn white. And the westernmost lamp of the candelabrum did not burn continually. You know why that this is the case? 
This is the case because the very fire of God moved from the temple of Israel to certain men of Israel. He is still an Israeli fire to this day. Come on, somebody, tell me that that is not mind-blowing. That it's recorded in Jewish sources, the transference of the Shekinah glory of God, the Israeli fire, from the temple complex to the Israeli men complex. Come on, that's good. Those men of Israel, with purified personal temples, they lit a whole new kind of Hanukkah special menorah in their windows, didn't they? They were burning so brightly that they set Gentiles on fire with an Israeli fire. The God who purifies His people is willing to purify the rest of the world if they will receive Israeli fire. Put this in context of Hanukkah, which is happening now. God didn't come to kill the Syrians. He didn't come to kill the Greeks. He came to affirm that His fire is in Israel and invite the world to accept the one culture that they find unacceptable. The one designed by God. That's what's going on in Cornelius' house. He is an Italian. He is a centurion. He is loyal to a Roman army, except he has fallen in love with, hear me, the Israeli fire. He is moving in the Holy Spirit. He is giving alms to the poor. He is a good man that has fled to the God of Israel. So their fire, somebody say their fire, their fire became his fire too. And what a mystery it is that you can be lit on fire by their fire. But that doesn't make it yours. It's theirs. We cannot extinguish their flame so that yours burns brightly. It will not work that way. In fact, if many of them have been cut off that you, a wild olive branch, might be grafted in, what will their acceptance be except a blazing fire from God? Amen. Come on, that Israeli fire that we see throughout the Word and that we now have the ability to participate in, we also see in Revelation. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. It is a treasure to have access to this Israeli fire. Amen? Amen. God's not done with Israel. Man, some of you that are struggling that are to give you hope. Yeah. He didn't give up on them. He's not done with them. And he's not done with you either. If his promise is true for them, it's true for you as well. If certain promises were given to you and no one else... God fulfills His specific certain promises to you just like He does then. It's not homogenous. It's not Breckleague. It's not everybody gets to perform the same function. If God gave you a unique role, then your unique role is exactly that. It's yours. We learn this from seeing God's specific promise to a specific people in a specific place. Come on. Verse 12. I turn around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Mm. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Come on now. Come on. Is this the picture that you think of when you think of the resurrected king? This is an Israeli king. With an Israeli fire in his eyes. And every church that he addresses was filled with the lampstand, was filled with the menorah of God given to Israel. So you can have Gentile 
churches, but whose fire are they holding? The fire given to Israel. This ought to keep a place burning in your heart forever for the people that lit you on fire. You might even see an obligation towards them. This Israeli fire has spread all the way from the sands of Israel to our shores. In fact, I met a young, handsome Nigerian named Abimbola, and he was reading a scripture written by a Jew to a Jew. It was Numbers 18.29. It says, You must present as the Lord's portion the best and holiest part of everything given to you. And that Israeli fire written in the book of Numbers got on him. And he began to think personally, Am I giving you the best part of everything, Lord? And he caught on fire from the fires of Israel. Come on, Caleb Brown, who is now in the the sound booth building the kingdom of God and not that of his own, (laughs) has received an Israeli scripture full of Israeli fire. And that's Ephesians 4.1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This man has left everything that he was raised up in to come and join this ministry so that he could join us as we get into that Israeli fire. Come on, other men continue to receive this Israeli fire through Israeli scriptures. Gabriel Stevens found the, uh, was illuminated by the Israeli fire in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 7. Instead of their shame, my people receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land and everlasting joy will be theirs. These Israeli scriptures are setting Gabriel on fire with an Israeli fire. It's because he knows that it's true for them that he can claim it as true for him. If it's not true to the original people it was given to, it can never be true to you. But if it is true for them, then what does that mean for you? I ran into JJ and he shared with me a psalm that was written by a Jew to a Jewish nation. It was Psalm 27 in verse 13. I am still confident. Somebody say confident. confident. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord and be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. That was written by a Jew. Two other Jews, but JJ caught that Israeli fire and he knows that his hope and his waiting is not misplaced because what God promised Israel he'll do for them and if he does it for them, he'll do it for JJ too. Amen. I've had the blessed opportunity to see Israeli fire ignite inside the heart of Judah Stevens. That this is Israeli scripture of Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. An Israeli fire that God put within his father and his friends. He has had the opportunity to bear witness that number one, that we have that Israeli fire. Number two, that we are unschooled and ordinary men. That we have received the the seal of the Holy Ghost validating our ministry. In the same exact way we get to participate with Judah in his ministry with his brothers. And carrying that same Israeli fire. Hey man, another brother who is full of the Israeli fire is Justin Linton. And don't y'all love Justin? Yeah. This brother has found an Israeli scripture written by Jews to Jews that began to transform his life. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7. 
The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. This brother was touched by the fact that the Israeli God was faithful to his own people. That when they are crying out, when they were suffering, he heard their cry. He was moved from within. Justin began to trust in the Israeli fire from the Israeli God that says, if he did it for them, he could do it for me too. Amen. Justin Treister and I were saved many years apart, but we stumbled upon the same fiery Israeli fuse. He was reading Matthew 7.21. It said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This was a Jewish king addressing Jewish people about the father of the Jewish race. And it set his life ablaze. In fact, he is aiming at the very people that scripture was aimed for. And what is amazing is 20 years before that, God spoke the same scripture to me. See, it is an Israeli fire that is catching Gentiles on fire. This is not a Gentile religion. It is Israeli to the core. And God will again focus His attention on the Israeli people. He may even be turning your attention now. Amen. Amen. Keith, the counselor of conviction, Phillips, is a Gentile with Israeli fire found in Hebrews eleven sixteen. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. What we've observed in Keith's life is that he has abandoned all to seek the kingdom of God first. And we see this Israeli fire blazing inside of him. Nicola Aragina is a man that has a fire that we could all imitate. But where he got this fire from is from the Israeli scriptures written by the Jews to the Jews. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, it says this, Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. How many thousands of testimonies did the Hebrew scriptures tell us that say that that same faithful God who can work it out in them can give us that same type of Israeli fire within us? I want you to notice not one of these men went to a tarot card reader. Not one of these went to a prosperity pimp. They're about the same. Not one of these men found a Gentile prophet somewhere that changed their life. All of these men, when we asked them this morning, tell us what scripture impacted you and what caused you to fall in love with the king of the Jews. And without fail, every single man was affected by a scripture written by a Jew to Jewish people. Every single one of them. Peyton was not last. He was second to last. And when we asked him, we said, Peyton, what set you on fire for the glory of God? He said, it's Matthew 5 and verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Peyton and I have sat on the very hill where Jesus said that, in Israel, beside the Sea of Galilee, where Ezekiel comes to life because God is shepherding His people. And now... Sheep that were not of that fold have been included in the flock. And Peyton is one of them. But it is an Israeli flock and an Israeli fire. For Spencer McLean, a scripture that has ignited an Israeli fire inside of him is Acts 2.38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Spencer's life has been propelled forward with this scripture by this holy Israeli fire. 
Guys, we just ran through the men who studied with us this morning. That was it. We just, just asked the men there what impacted their life. We didn't find that the writings of Aristotle turned them on to the fire of God. We didn't find that the writings of a Gentile pastor turned them on to the fire of God. They all had the same Israeli ignition source. Do you know why? Because the very burning presence of God is an Israeli fire. Now, why are we telling you all of this and gone through law, prophets, writings, Old and New Testament to show you this? It's because 43 minutes into a sermon on the 2nd of December, we're entering into a Hanukkah season in more ways than one, aren't we? Yes. The truth of the gospel, the Israeli fire is under attack from the culture of the world all around us. It's been in many Gentile nations under attack. The people of God have been expelled from many Gentile nations, but... The fire of God, whether it sits with an Israeli or with a Gentile, is under attack by the culture all around us. The idea that somebody would remain a virgin till they're married is laughable to the world around us. The idea that somebody would not want to set an unclean thing before their eyes is laughable to the world around us. Everything about the Israeli fire of God that is burning brightly within us is under attack by the darkness of the world that is around us. Is it not? We may not be sitting in a situation where Antiochus has slaughtered a pig on the altar this month, but we're facing extraordinary paganism during the month of December. This is one of those things that pastors don't know how to handle or else they've stuck their head in the sand. It's not an easy question to answer when you have a fat guy in a red suit and reindeer and a sleigh that might as well be pulled by a Norse god. It's, it's difficult to know what to do with Roman syncretism, false biblical ideas like Jesus being born in December. It's difficult to know what to do with the materialism that is worshipped every December and celebrated in the name of Christ. It's hard to know what to do when your temple is under assault by the world around you and you have to stand for purity, but you're not sure exactly what that stand looks like. You should have heard it today during our worship time. Not only the songs that were sung, but the encouragement from the very Spirit of God to us today. The answer is is that we have to catch and we have caught an authentic Israeli fire. Examining how the first century men handled the world around them may shine a light in the darkness for us. And it will shine a light for the world around us. I want to highlight to you a fiery Israeli rabbi named Shaul. Turn to Philippians chapter 1 verse 7. Say God's not done with Israel when you're there. Come on. Come on now. Come on. God's not done with Israel. Where are the rest of you? He's not. We want the Hanukkah relevance of the Israeli fire to have relevance in your own life. Whatever the biblical values you have learned from Israel are that are under assault... There is a way that we are supposed to handle this. And it's not in making rules for everyone to follow. 
I get calls all of the time in December. How should we handle a tree versus no tree? How do we handle the colors of Christmas? How do we handle each of these things? And the truth is, is that Augustus Caesar was worshipped in the month of December. And he was worshipped with 12 days of gift giving. And almost everything that we do is a gross, grotesque twisting of anything that could be called righteous. And yet... There is no day of our lives that that's not true. If we meet on Saturday, we meet on a day named after a foreign God. If we meet on a Monday, we meet on a day named after a foreign God. If you give an offering to this church, the money that you put in the offering box has pagan symbols on it, and the cars that you drive were put together by Buddhists. We are in a dark place, and yet we have the Israeli... The Buddhist thing didn't offend you, did it, Cho? Because you're not Buddhist anymore, man. Because we have an Israeli fire by God and that oil will not go out and he will continually purify his temple. The answer is not more rules. It's to know and experience the fire of God. Are you in Philippians 1.7? What are you supposed to say when you get there? It is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart, that heart was full of Israeli fire and a love for Gentile peoples. Whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. I want to talk to you about this phrase, defending and confirming the gospel. Because at the heart of the issue, the Jewish people had to stand up during the Maccabean time period. They had to resist paganism. But some stood up by taking a sword. Some stood up by refusing to bow a knee to Antiochus like Hannah and her seven sons. And some stood up by getting on their knees and praying for their nation. We may have different ways that we approach this, but it has to be lit by the same fire of God. Somebody say amen in the house of God. The words defending and confirming are our next two slides. Apologia 627, it is to give an answer or speech in defense. That says of oneself, but I want to argue with that. You're not defending yourself. You are stating what the scripture says. You are, you are putting out there the truth that you now know is true. The idea of confirming is our next slide. It is the word babeos. Babeos means ratification, cooperation, or confirmation. Let me show these to you in a chart. That chart is very small. <laughs> Let me say it this way. <laughs> when we apologia, when we stand up and we do what the Bible calls defending, it has to do with a statement of truth. That you have gleaned from the word. When we confirm. What it has to do with. Is the way that you were calling it reliable. Confirming it. Strengthening it. Or cooperating it. Defending and confirming. Is stating the truth of the scripture. And your experience with the scripture. Do you see why we're not issuing a set of rules on how you, dis- how you handle December? Do you see why it would be wrong to do so? 
You were supposed to be led by the scripture's impact on your life. The experience you have had with the scripture. That should not be a papal edict. One man may not want to do something and another man be completely free to do it and both led by the same fire. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1 and we're going to begin in verse 19. This idea of defending and confirming. Amen. Amen. Take a look at this passage. It says this, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain. Can you repeat that phrase with me? Made more certain. Amen. Say it again. Made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Do you understand where we're going here in this? We're seeing that the Scriptures are being made more certain. And it's like a light that shines in a dark place. Verse 21, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the very Holy Spirit. I want to declare a truth to you that is worth writing down. Truth is truth, whether you have experienced it or not. Let me say that again. Truth is truth, whether you have experienced it or not. In staying with our theme of fire, it's still truth, whether you experience it or not, that you burn, your skin will burn if you put it inside a fire. Yeah. I don't don't have to do that in order to believe that that is the truth. Uh, How much more then... Is it truth that the baptism of the Holy Ghost is a necessity for the believer? It's such a necessity that Jesus would not let them go out and evangelize until they were filled with the Holy Ghost. How much of it is a necessity that the blood of Jesus atone for your sins? Because you know what? There are very liberalistic or libtard lies that come from our culture. And they try to tell this, that this way of life, this intense seeking after God is just one of many ways. That it's almost fruitless, resulting in nothing more than just a effortless pursuit of something that's righteous. And there can be an alternative way. I know that what Jesus said is true. And what we are living our lives to declare is that he is the way. He is the truth and he is the life. That's true whether you accept it or not. But you know the extent to which it's true. It becomes more true once you've experienced it. See, when you accept truth, when you live in it, then it grows within you. It was never not true. The fire burns you whether your hand's been in it or not. But if you put your hand in it, now you're even more certain that it burns you. Does that make sense? Yes. Our obligation during dark times when we have had incursions of paganism in every direction is to state what we know to be true and our experience with that truth. That is what it means to shine the light of the God of Israel. A nation did that for us by giving us a Bible. A nation did that for us by carrying the testimony of the God of Israel 
through the centuries, and now we must also carry our own yoke. Somebody say amen in the house of God. We defend the gospel by stating the truth. We confirming it, we confirm it by relating your and others' experience with it. The first century Israel's struggled, Israelis struggled with the incursion of pagan influences into every facet of their existence. The port city of Caesarea Maritime is a good example. Can we put up the first slide there? This is an amphitheater in Caesarea. You see that you can see where the pillars are, where they've been broken down over the over the course of time, but this is where all kind of idolatrous entertainment took place. Now we don't have enough time to go into uh, just how putrefying their activities were there. We don't have time to go through and how they would have little boys half-dressed uh, for easy access for people around as they were walking around the stadium. We, we can't go into the things that were, that were presented before people and the things that were done right here on these steps. It's an idolatry of entertainment. At least we don't have to deal with that now. Oh wait, we do. Yeah. There are idolatrous things all around us. See, the people there didn't think any more about the half-dressed boys than we might see about half-dressed women in a particular sporting event. They think they thought no different than many of us in this place think today. There is an idolatrous spirit that is there about many of our forms of entertainment, about all of our forms of entertainment. And yet we seem to be okay with it. Why? Because we're used to it. Because it seems culturally appropriate. When you walk up to this very amphitheater that is sitting in kind of the midway point between north and south Israel, right on the coast in one of the prettiest places, everywhere else in Israel you do not see imagery of human beings because they don't make graven imagery. So on their columns and in their art, you see pomegranates, you see uh, things that God designed in nature, but you don't see the image of human beings. When you walk up to this, there are fully naked Greek statues because pagan influence had come in and occupied Israel in the first century. So Jews that caught uh, the local bus station, if you will, ships, they had to go stand by this. Feet from here, Jews were put to death for no other reason than they were God's people. This was done by the very people who later would benefit from Israeli fire. Let's go to the next slide. Here again in Caesarea Maritime. This is the Hippodrome where they idolized athletics. Where the the most impoverished, the lowest class of society could ascend to the highest ranking of being a celebrity by achieving fleshly feats within this uh, circle. Mm. The people would gather from all around to celebrate the death of an opponent. And they would uh, make it idolatry to celebrate fleshly feats. When you're looking at a hippodrome like this, This really represents the extravagance of Rome in every way that had creeped into every area of life. The same kind of spirit that would take a king that was born, not in a hospital, not not in a palace, but in a manger setting, and celebrate his birth with the most grotesque display of materialism that the world's ever seen. The same kind of spirit took horse racing 
to a level in this stadium that ended in the death of men every time that it happened. More than that, on these very sands, Pontius Pilate, who we all recognize killed Jesus, killed many thousands of Jews. More than that, before the temple was destroyed in AD 70, Jews that were feet from here in a synagogue were offended that pagan sacrifices were going on at the steps of their synagogue and the response from Rome was to take them to these sands and murder them for their convictions. See, a nation has carried for a long time the fire of God. You have benefited from that fire. And to believe that God would stop short before that nation experiences everything and more that you have would be a terrible mistake. I want to show you the next slide. These columns that are off to the left in the beautiful Mediterranean Sea there are Herod's palace, an Idumean king who occupied Israel with Rome's help and had the very title that belonged to Jesus. The palace stretched out into the sea so that he could entertain his guest with a sea breeze. It's, of course, right next to the amphitheater and right next to the hippodrome. Can somebody say wealth is deceitful? Can can you think that luxury can end up being something that causes people to lose sight of their very purpose in life? We're in a time period in our lives right now where all around us is darkness. Antiochus Epiphanes was like an antichrist. He came in and physically slaughtered a pig on the altar. Today we live with things that pigs wouldn't live with. When the demons were cast out of the man and into the pig, pigs, they committed suicide rather than live with it. We're supposed to be the burning fire of God lit on fire by Israel. Have we picked up contaminants of entertainment? Contaminants of athletics, contaminants of paganism all around us that we now call holy? We have to take our stand on the scripture itself and our experience with the scripture. If what you do is driven by the word, if what you do is driven by your experience with the word, then you should have every reason to stand up and defend and confirm it. But it might be time to re-examine what we do. While we're in Caesarea Maritime, it's probably good to note that it is right here in this city that Paul, filled with an Israeli fire, confronted the darkness of his day. It could have been in so many places, but it was here. And I want you to remember that Paul is authentically, fully Jewish, and he was a follower of Jesus as a follower of the way. To remind you of that before we go into Caesarea Philippi, there is a slide that I want to show you. This is a summary of some things that you find in the book of Acts prior to what we're about to read. Then Paul made his defense, I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. This tells you that Paul was law observant. But even if you didn't see it that way, Look at the list, Acts 21.20, 21.24, 22.12, 24.14, 24.17, 
zealous for the law, living in obedience to the law, devout observer of the law, in agreement with the law, and found to be ceremonially clean. Paul had an authentic Israeli fire, uncontaminated with the world and purified by God. His body became a temple for the very fire of God. In Acts 23, 6, it says, Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers. Why does he call them brothers? Because they are. My brothers, I am a Pharisee, not I was a Pharisee, not I used to be a Pharisee. In the present tense, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. The same pure fire that passed through the sacrifice of Abraham was now passing through the man Paul. The glory of the temple moved from brick and mortar to Israeli men exactly like Paul. It did not depart from Israel and go to Norway or Belgium or France. It went to Israeli men. Amen? Let's examine one of these passages a little bit more closely. Turn with me to Acts chapter 24. God is not done with Israel. Yes. Preach it. Preach it. This passage of scripture occurs exactly in the places that you've just seen in these pictures that we showed you. This is the the area of Caesarea Maritime that Paul is. And we're going to look at Acts 24, beginning in verse 10. It says this, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know That for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation. So I will gladly make my defense. This is the word that Pastor Eric just taught us a few moments ago. The apologia. He is going to present the truth to these leaders over him. You can easily verify, verse 11, that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Somebody say to worship. To worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple. Or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. They had three pretty large accusations that they were hurling at Paul. Unfounded. Unbased in any kind of way. And this is what Paul is now defending before them. Verse 14, however, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. Does that sound like he's trying to do away with the Tanakh? Not at all. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. Verse 15, and I have the same hope. Somebody say same hope. Same hope. In God as these men. There will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Now this may sound a little bit repetitive. Pastor Eric just read you a scripture from Acts 23 that we're saying some of these basic things. You're hearing it again in 24. Why is that? Because Paul is continually establishing that this is the same Israeli father, uh, the same Israeli fire that the forefathers had. This is exactly what they believed in. All the way back to Genesis, we saw the need, the necessity for resurrection. And he is staking his very life on it. I believe this. I have the same hope in God as these men. That there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. 
So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Wow, what a great picture for us this morning. Let's continue to read in verse 17. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. This is a reminder that Paul was Torah observant. And each of these things, he is fulfilling mitzvahs. He's fulfilling what he was supposed to do according to the Torah. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Come on, if you're going to accuse me something, accuse me to my face. Say it clearly. Charge me if you're going to charge me. This is what Paul is doing. Does this sound like someone who's on trial? This, he, is, he is getting tried, and yet he begins with the authority that Christ has within him. He begins with an authority that comes from the Israeli fire, that comes from having the Scripture and having personal experience with it. Verse 21, Unless it is the one thing that I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. Come Are on. you hearing the repetitive nature of that? Yeah. Yes. God staked the nation of Israel's hopes on the resurrection of the dead. As far back as Abraham. As before that, but as far back as Abraham. That has been the hope of the nation then. Was the hope of the nation in the first century. And is still the hope of the nation today. The extraordinary turn of events here is that Paul has the same hope that they do, but they have two different kinds of fire. One is an authentic Israeli fire, and the other is an unauthorized fire. One is in line with the heart of God, and the other is opposed to the heart of God. In fact, Paul's authentic Israeli fire is not only unacceptable to the Romans that he's standing before, it's unacceptable to the religious aristocracy that have been removed from leadership. See, God's ways of doing things are wholly unacceptable to those that are not living in the truth. But when you're living in the truth, you become more and more certain of it and your fire burns brighter and brighter. Yeah. Amen. Look at verse 22. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. You know what's happening here? Felix is beginning to feel the conviction that comes from an Israeli fire that's presented to him. He's beginning to be moved in his heart by what Paul is saying because he knows that it's true. Paul has done a right kind of defense where he's presented the truth and his experience with that truth, that Israeli fire, and is beginning to work on Felix. Now, we all actually know what that feels like, don't you? The Lord begins to deal with you and you start thinking of the things that you need to go and do here in a few minutes. The Lord begin, begin to work on your heart and your, and, your, and your mind wanders to something else because we are uncomfortable with the idea that the Israeli fire begins to convict us, begins to remold us and to remodel us and to, and to try to set us ablaze. This is what's happening with Felix. Continue on in verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who is a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Listen to what Paul discoursed upon in verse 25. As Paul discoursed on righteousness. Amen. Come on, say righteousness. 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 
Self-control. Say self-control. Self-control. And the judgment to come. Judgment to come. Righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Is that how you start working with people? Is that how you start your, your, uh, your evangelizing to someone around you? Do we try to just kind of ease into it, see how their day was? Or do we go for an actual defense of the gospel that says, here is what the truth is. When you see the conviction of the Holy Spirit begin to work on somebody, do you begin to speak on righteousness? Paul did. Because he had an Israeli fire and he understood it. When you see them starting to squirm and starting to find an excuse to leave, do you start, start talking about self-control? Do you start talking about the judgment that is to come? This is a model for us. This is what should be interacting in our heart if we have the same fire that Paul had. <laughs> Look at what Felix answered. He was afraid and said, that's enough for now. <laughs> that's one thing for a, for a pagan leader to say that's enough for now. But what about us today? The Lord is trying to ignite our hearts with an Israeli fire today. Have you gotten to a point in your heart where you're saying that's enough for now? Well, pastor, don't you know, didn't you see me? I came down in, in worship. I came down to the altar. That's enough for now. I've had enough. Let's just stop right there. Is it enough to hear the call, the beckon of God to say, I want to release my fire upon you today? No, that's enough for now. Thanks. I'm good. Doing pretty good. Family seems to be happy. I think I've got just about enough of your fire for now. The Lord is trying to ignite hearts and lives in this place today. How many times can you be in a service and just say, yeah, that's good enough. I'm, I'm good. I'm completely fine. This fire that he has, we're not guaranteed to come again and get together and have the fire. Oh, he's going to respond to us as a church. But there's no assurity that you have that he'll continue to work on your heart that that fire might engulf you. Amen. My brother Matt is going to take over here and and go on another verse, but I want to challenge you today. Don't let the words of Felix actually echo inside of your soul. That's enough for now. I want to continue with the thought that Wade is sharing from this encounter with Felix. And that is when the authentic Israeli fire of God is put on trial, it in turn begins to put that person on trial. There should be no fear that we have as believers that what is inside of us is inferior to anything that is out there. That when we stand on the truth of God's word and share our experiences with it, that is that righteousness, that self-control, and that judgment to come. That the authority of God's authentic Israeli fire will well up inside of you and give you exactly what you need to say in response. Let's pick up in Acts 26 and verse 27. And now see... Paul in front of Agrippa. Come on, say it loud now. God's not done with Israel. There we go. Paul speaking. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Paul knowing some history about this man, but he immediately begins to turn the tide of the trial that he is no longer. The Israeli fire inside of him is no longer on trial. Now the heart condition of a king is on trial. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Like, Do you really know who I am? Yes, Paul knows fully who he is. Because that authentic Israeli fire in him gives him the ability to put Agrippa on trial. 
Paul replied, short time or long, I pray that not only, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. As we bring this message to a close and hopefully in your hearts to a practical application, I want to show you a picture. This little room right here where we're standing is a pretty special place. This is in Caesarea Maritime. Behind the guy with the backpack is the Hippodrome. In front of the guy with the backpack is the amphitheater. To the guy's right is Herod's palace. Surrounded by all that the pagan world had to offer. That is the room. Next slide. Where Paul makes his appeal to Caesar. That little bitty room. And in Israeli fire. Not unlike the fire in the small room that was the Holy of Holies. Not unlike the fire that every Jew during the Maccabean time period lit and put in their window. Not unlike the fire that you're supposed to carry inside of you. Have the power to take the persecuting world that put Christianity or the authentic Israeli fire on trial and turn it around so that they felt the judgment of God in their lives. See, what is in you is greater than what is in the world. So our lives are not consumed by tree or no tree. They're not consumed by ham or no ham. They're not consumed by those things. Your life is built upon the Scripture and your experience with the Scripture. You don't need rules given to you. Because that keeps you from having to experience The scripture, what you need are godly convictions that lead you through the darkest times. The kind of spirit that was found in Hannah that said, you can kill me and you can kill my seven sons, but I will not bow to a man who says he's God. No matter the cost, I will not participate in your idolatry. When you get that kind of conviction, you don't need rules. So I want to ask you, The church of the living God. Where do your convictions lie? Are you looking to pick a fight with your relatives? Or are you sharing the scripture and your experience with it? Are you looking to win an argument? Or are you simply standing on your convictions? Are you going through an intellectual exercise? Are you exercising what your spirit knows you must do? Here I stand and I can stand no other place. You know, I haven't fought with anybody about the holidays in a long time because I've been fully persuaded for a long time what I must do. I have no particular persuasion about what you must do. As we enter into December, let us remember our older bloodline Jewish brothers. And the stand that they've taken against the world. Because the world has found one culture intolerable. Whatever God designed. Your convictions must stand the persecution of the world. And if you receive no persecution, you probably do not have any convictions. At the beginning of December... 
knowing what awaits all of us. That in every store, some will be singing about Jesus and some will be using his name to make money. In the face of everything that we have, how are you going to shine the menorah of God? Because it didn't originate with you. It originated with the people that it will again reside with. And you have been lit on fire like a relay race. The baton has been handed to you in this moment. And only you can shine in the world that is around you. Where do you stand? Not just about dates that Romans put on calendars. But about every facet of your faith. Can you say that you have had an experience with the scripture? Can you share your experience with the scripture? Can you only relate other people's rules and other people's experiences? I can tell you I love everybody in this room. I can say that honestly today. There's enough of us that I know every person in the room. I can also say honestly, I've known some of you for decades and I can't discern much of a walk with God. What if now was the time that you had God complete for you what you've never been able to do for yourself see Abraham was asleep he was asleep when the covenant was initiated and he was asleep when it was completed because although you have to fight for the covenant you cannot bring it about you're going to have to trust the fire of God to do that do you have a need for the fire of God? Yes. Are there things that you have been fighting for, but you cannot bring about? Now is the time when we can fall at the mercy of God and say, let me learn to lift your menorah high. I only have one day's oil, Lord, and we got eight to go. Right now, I need you to fill me. My walk has been yielding to Antiochus. My walk has been yielding to Pompey. My walk is indiscernible from the world around me. And I want to be burning brightly in the window of your house. Now is the time we can lift up Israeli fire. Would you stand to your feet? Paul made his appeal to Caesar and it rung out around the world. The best-selling book of all time in more languages than any other book. When you make your appeal to Caesar's world, it'll ring out through the darkness in the same way. It'll separate light from darkness and it will put people on trial that thought that you were the one on trial. The Word of God is a double-edged sword. But you have to experience it before what you share is worth anything to anyone else. We're inviting you to the fire of God at your left hand. The Word of God at your right hand. We are inviting you to the holy place where you are supposed to stand. But only you can answer that call. Father, we lift up your great name.
We say we thank You for the fires that were lit from heaven in the nation of Israel. Lord, we're asking that today Your fire would fall upon us. That Your holy, heavenly, Israeli fire would fall on us and lead us into the convictions we must shine. Lord, let us experience You in a way that makes an appeal to a dying world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.